May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. Last night, Bonnie and I went to uh, Auckland to hear William Shatner in his one-person um, show. Some of you might know him from uh, Star Trek days, the infamous Captain Kirk. Uh, and some of you might know him more recently from Boston Legal, the infamous Denny Crane. Uh, or you might have known him from something else, or you might not know him at all. And uh, he talked about, well, he talked about his life, really, but he talked about where we get our sense of humour from. And his was, when he was younger, he used to skip school and go down to one of the last burlesque um, theatres left in Montreal, uh, which was kind of musical theatre, slapstick. So I thought about that, and I thought, where do I get my sense of humour from? And I would have to say, uh, from a small group of Englishmen called Monty Python. I would say, if somebody asked me, what is the greatest film ever made, it would be, without doubt, Monty Python and the Quest for the Holy Grail. I own a t-shirt which has Knights of Need on it. And there are a number of people who think it's a great t-shirt and have said, said so. And there are lots of people who look at it and go, what are the Knights of Need? And I say to them, if you don't know, it's not worth explaining it. I'm very excited because in the mail is another t-shirt which has on it Your mother was a hamster and your father stinks of elderberries Which Bonnie is not looking forward to going out with me in public <laughs> There's a scene in that movie Where towards the end when King Arthur and some of his knights are near the end of their quest and they are trying, they have to cross this bridge and there's a gatekeeper there. And like all good quests, there are questions that need to be answered. Deep and meaningful questions. So the first knight goes up and the three questions were, What is your name? What is your quest? What is your favourite colour? To which that knight says, Oh, that's quite easy, that's blue. And he gets across. The next knight, Sir Robin, gets it wrong. He gets confused. No, blue, no, orange, no, red. Ah, and he gets cast into the eternal pit of whatever it was. Eventually, King Arthur gets there and he is asked, What is your name? What is your quest? What is the average flight velocity of a swallow? <laughs> to which King Arthur replies, What, an African swallow or a European swallow? <laughs> to which the questioner says, Oh, I don't know that. Ah! The importance of questions. <laughs> questions are important. One of my theology lecturers, uh, the one that I remember the most, said that when we do theology, like unfortunately I only had it for one course, but he said when we do theology... The most important thing about our theology is the question we ask at the beginning. And when you have finished answering that question, unless it leads to a, another question, an equally good question, or an even better question, then it's clearly the wrong answer and you should start again until you get to the next question. And the entire course was built around that. So we had three assignments. The first assignment was ask a question, work on answering it, 
The second assignment was, well, the previous assignment should have come up with another question. Do some work on that question. And the third assignment was, the previous assignment should have come up with a third question. Do some work on that. He ran a whole undergraduate degree course in theology using that in America, where he was a lecturer at one of the big universities. They only ever had lectures in the phenomenology of religion, which I never really understood what that was, uh, but I really liked that, had that phrase, phenomenology of religion. It took me a long time to even learn how to say it. And they had tutorials. And so over the course of three years, that's all they did. They had to hand in, probably weekly, an assignment based on their question. The end of the three years, this is one of the nasty degree courses where you get to do all your exams at the end of the three years, not the end of each course. So his students were up against students who had done the traditional way of doing theology, which was you did studies and classes in the Bible studies, classes in theology, classes in church history, classes in pastoral care, etc. His students did the best. They had covered the course while they were doing answering their questions. But they'd answered, they'd learnt all of that stuff in relation to the questions that were important to them. It wasn't just nice academic stuff that they'd been asking. They were their questions. Today, in our two, two of the readings we heard, the reading from Job and the reading from Mark, we heard two people asking the questions that were important to them. And both of those readings, in fact, the whole of Job hinges around the asking of the questions. Now, there are all kinds of questions. There are the questions which we ask, which we don't really want to know the answer of, which is, how are you? And we're expecting the answer, good. And if anyone answers you honestly, especially when they're having a bad day, we're always taken a little bit surprised. It's like, oh, no, I didn't really want to know that. I just wanted you to say good. I was just being polite. There are other questions when we genuinely do want to know how people were. So that's a question of, um, of interest. There are the kind of academic questions, the, things, the questions you pursue because you're vaguely interested, like the history of the Vikings or the Mongols or something like that. Uh, there are the questions that motivate us and inspire us. And then there are the questions that come out of who we are that when we speak those questions, they actually reveal something of who we are, how we see the world, how we see God, and our place in all of that. And those are the kind of questions that Job and the young man and Mark ask him. The minute they speak their question, who they are, how they see the world, is revealed. Job's question is the question that all of us ask at some point. Some of us a lot more often than just at some point. The question of, why is this happening to me? Or as Job puts it in summary form, why, O oh God, have you done this to me? And that question is a question that a lot of us ask and it reveals something about who we see ourselves as in relation to God. Now, when Job, well, Job's a literary figure really, but when the book of Job was being written, everyone knew how the world worked. 
And the world worked this way. God was in charge and everything happened because God was in charge. And the righteous would be rewarded with health and a long life, lots of offspring and wealth, all of which meant you were a person of high honour. And so people who were wealthy and healthy and of high honour were clearly being rewarded by God. And the sinners, well, they were punished. They had lives with sickness, short lives, no offspring or very few, and poverty. People of low honour. And God was clearly, clearly punishing them. And so Job goes from a person of high honour to a person of low honour, from a person of health and wealth to a person of sickness and all his money and his family are gone. And so he asks, why, oh God, have you done this to me? And we know the answer to that because we've heard the beginning of the story where Satan and God are having a conversation. Now, I just need to say that in this book, Satan isn't the bad guy that we think he is. Satan was the chief prosecutor. Satan was on God's side. That's how they understood Satan at the point where Job was being written. He was just the chief prosecutor. Satan's job was to make sure that God knew who were the bad people so they could be punished. So he was saying, I think this guy Job, I think he's not as good as you, he's cracked up to be. That's it. None of this bad, no, nothing more beyond that. Why, oh God, have you done this to me? There are a lot of people who still ask that question. It reveals something about how we see God being in charge of everything. But there are others who then might not ask that question. Their question might simply be, why is this happening to me? And where are you, God, in the midst of this? It is a fundamental question which all of us ask. And today, well, we had the psalmist who asked the same question. The same question that Jesus asked on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which might be translated as, why have you done this to me? But might also be, well, this bad stuff is happening where are you? Why am I all alone? It's such a, a basic question. And the thing we need to learn from today is that there is nothing wrong with asking that question. Job asks it. The psalmist asks it. Jesus asked it. We are allowed to ask it. As long as we remember that with Job and with Jesus, there are no easy answers. It would be nice if there were easy answers, but there aren't. Next week, we will hear God's response to Job. But basically, God says there are no easy answers. That nice, neat way you understand the world, it's not really how it works. There are no easy answers, but it's okay to ask the question to ask, where is God in the midst of this place? Which sometimes is enough to know that God is there, and sometimes it's not. We also heard this morning the question, the hard question of the rich young man, which is a really interesting question. It's one of those big questions that reveals a lot about who he is, and how he sees the world, and how he sees himself, and how he sees God. What must I do to inherit eternal life? 
It's a question that we're so used to, we just slide over the top of, without ever really ask, asking ourselves, what is it that he's asking there? The first word that stood out for me is the word inherit. Who inherits? The eldest son. No one else inherits. If you were a younger son, you didn't inherit. If you were a daughter, you didn't inherit. If you were a wife, you didn't inherit. The only person in a family who ever inherited was the oldest son. The oldest son. This is a question that only an oldest son will ask. Because they are the only ones that know anything about inheritance. Implied in that question is a whole lot of entitlement and it is my right to inherit, to gain eternal life. Tell me, what do I need to do? What boxes do I need to tick off so that I can get what I think is mine? That's a lot of baggage hanging in that one word, in that question. And then the the word, the phrase, eternal life, what does he mean by that? I mean, we think we know, because we're 2,000 years down the track, and we have 2,000 years of Christian theology which says after we die, we go to heaven, and there's an afterlife. But that's actually not a particularly strong point of view within Judaism. Then or now, life ended at death. This concept of resurrection was a new concept. It hadn't been around for a long time. Afterlife was a new concept. So when this man asks, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life, what does he mean? There was a survey, one of the books I read recently said, there was a survey done in America amongst American Jews which said only 50% of them believe in an afterlife. For the other 50%, still, death is the end. And what is important is that your name is remembered and is carried on through your children. That's what afterlife meant. So we bring our own assumptions to that and think we know what he's asking, but actually I think we miss some of the things. And we will never know what that rich young man might have understood by eternal life. But I think there are some clues in Jesus' answer. And Jesus' answer has two parts to it. First is, he asks him, why do you say that I'm good? And that, most commentators would say, is based on the Shema, the Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. God alone is good. Which is, people would say, a summary of the first five words of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, which are all about God. And then he answers the question by giving the next five words. The things that are about how we relate to each other. Except his version is slightly different from what you'll find in uh, Deuteronomy and in Numbers. So I'll let you go home and work out why, what Jesus, he leaves one out and inserts a different one. So clearly Mark wasn't that kind of into getting it exactly right. Now, there are a whole lot of people that think that the Ten Commandments and the whole Torah, the Law of Moses, is a kind of a checklist of things that one must do to inherit eternal life, whatever that means. 
But actually, maybe it's a way of describing what eternal life is. When the Ten Commandments were given, the people of God were living in the presence of God. They knew that because at night there was a pillar of fire, and during the day there was a pillar of there was a, a pillar of cloud. And that pillar said, God is here and God is leading us somewhere. So we often think that obeying the Ten Commandments and obeying the Mosaic Law was about how we earn the right to live in the presence of God. But actually they didn't have to earn the right. They were already living in the presence of God. And they didn't do anything to earn that. God just turned up one day and brought them out of Egypt. So the question wasn't, how do I earn the right to live in the presence of God? The question was, oh dear God, we're living in the presence of God. How are we supposed to do that? What does that mean? And so Moses tells them what that means. This is how you live in the presence of God. The first thing to remember about living in the presence of God is, well, the first five words of the Decalogue are all about how important God is. God is the most important thing. You want to think about something, think about God. You want to long for something, long for God. God is the beginning and the end. God is all. That's the first thing about living in the presence of God. God is all-consuming. God should be the focus of your life. Therefore, next five words, you don't need to think about looking at your neighbour and wishing that you had what your neighbour had, like his wife or his ass or whatever, because you're way too busy thinking about God. So thinking about God and living in the presence of God then shapes everything. shouldn't be murdering people because you're thinking about God. It shapes everything that we do. Shouldn't be worrying about having more honour, shouldn't be worried about your long life, shouldn't be worried about wealth, should just be worried about God. That's it. It's pretty simple. Not very hard at all. That's what it means to live in the presence of God. So maybe eternal life then was living in the presence of God. But Jesus isn't annoyed by the question. I mean, you think, that's a pretty selfish question. Jesus loves him. Maybe because of the question. Because the question was so honest. It revealed so much about him. And Jesus says to him, you've got all this stuff that gets in the way of you really making God number one. You need to go and get rid of it. Go, sell, give it to the poor. And then come back and make God your one priority. Now, we kind of glide over the next piece, but actually I think he was speaking as much to his disciples as to that rich young man. Because I think a lot of them were with Jesus because, well, they thought if we follow this guy and he kicks out the Romans and becomes the king, and he's going to have all the power and the glory and the wealth, and if we're the 12 closest guys, guess what? We'll have all the power and the wealth and the glory as well. We'll be in. Cool. Except Jesus just said to this guy, go and sell everything you have 
and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. That's not part of their plan. So Jesus says to them, it's really hard for a rich person to get into the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. They're going, what? We're in this for the wealth. Get out of here. You got this all wrong. Why are you doing this to us? They also had to learn the same lesson. The lesson of the Ten Commandments. How do we live in the presence of God? When God is the most important thing in our life. When God is the one thing that we think about all the time. When God is the focus of everything we do. That's when we live in the presence of God. I think Jesus is also saying that to us. How do we know what's getting in our way? By the questions we ask. Questions are important because they reveal so much about us, about who we are and what makes us tick, how we see ourselves and how we see each other. So ask the questions. Because when we ask the questions, then we can get some answers. And sometimes the answers we hear might not be the answers we want. Just like the rich young man didn't get the answer he wanted. Just like the disciples didn't get the answers they wanted. But actually, the answers they got were the answers that led to life. So, ask the questions. What are the questions that you want to ask? What are the questions that burn within you? And when you ask them, what is Jesus saying to you? So let's just spend a moment in quiet thinking about that. Or if you want to, talk to your neighbour about that. We don't have to sit in quiet in here. This is an eight o'clock. So you're allowed to turn around and talk to your neighbour, but not everyone likes to talk to their neighbour, so if you want to, you can sit in quiet for a moment, and then we will stand and do Hattikanga Whakapono.